0: Textbooked.
1: You're listening to Untextbooked. This is a history podcast for the future that gives young people like us agency and voice in our education. I'm your host, Gabe Hostin. This week we are revisiting a very important question. Is our democracy in danger? Producer Jessica Cheraboga brought us this interview, and she's actually one of the founding producers of Untextbooked. Believe it or not, you hear her voice on every single episode.
0: Untextbooked.
1: Untextbooked. Yep, that's Jessica. She's graduating from Dartmouth this year, and she was recently named a 2024 Rhodes Scholar. Absolutely incredible. And she'll be heading to Oxford to pursue a degree in history. I'm going to pass the mic to her to introduce this episode.
0: Hello everyone, it's Jess here. I'm very excited to reshare this episode from season three with you. I chose this book last year because I was concerned with ways democracy can be slowly and subtly eroded. And now, a year later, the same challenges to democracy persist across the globe. In this episode, we discuss how leaders subvert democratic processes and how people can address the erosion of democratic norms and the weakening of democratic institutions. I hope you enjoy the episode and learn something new. Hello, Professor Ziblott. Thank you so much for joining us. I wanted to start off by asking, what inspired you to write a book about democracies dying?
2: Well, I'm somebody who's spent my career teaching and researching the fate of democracies historically in other parts of the world. Partly, you know, there's a kind of family history story to that. My family immigrated from Eastern Europe, actually contemporary Ukraine, uh, right before World War One, And so I've always been kind of alert to the precarity of democracy. And so that's just always informed my own research. But I really didn't spend much of my career studying American democracy until more recently. So, you know, I've taught courses on it, researched, written books on it for over the last, you know, 15, 20 years or so.
0: Many young people today are scared about the state of our democracy. But as you argue, gone are the days of democracy backsliding through coups and military force. So how is our democracy eroding today?
2: Well, so as I said, I always studied this in other places. And one of the things that I had learned in studying and teaching about democracy is that historically, democracy often got into trouble, at least during the Cold War, through military seizures of power, through assassinations of the president, and really violent acts to overthrow governments. But what one of the things that scholars have noted over the last 20 years or so is that increasingly democracies die not through military seizures, not at the hands of men with guns, but rather through kind of normal political actors being elected, politicians, presidents, prime ministers coming to power through democratic means and then using the very institutions of democracy to attack democracy. So that, that's that been increasingly happening around the world since the end of the Cold War. It's just a general pattern. You can think here of Erdogan in and, and Turkey or Viktor Orban in Hungary, in some ways Putin in Russia, although I would argue Russia was never really a democracy in the 1990s. And then one of the things that just began to strike my co-author, I, Steve Levitsky, who wrote our book, How Democracies Die, was that we saw this tendency in 2016 increasing in the United States. And so that was really this point at which we realized this pattern we had seen and been teaching our students about in other parts of the world. We saw these real parallels to the United States. And so this made us very nervous. And so that's what really inspired us to write our book.
0: These leaders are being elected at the ballot box by people. What effect do you think democracy backsliding at the ballot box has had for identifying democratic threats.
2: Well, it's really interesting is that if somebody uses elections to come into power and they're an authoritarian, some level they're democratic because they've been democratically elected. So they have this kind of legitimacy and you should respect the will of voters in a democracy. And so the challenge then is they superficially may not look threatening because they're not using guns to get into power and instead they're using the normal democratic means. What's tricky about this though, of course, is that just because you're elected democratically doesn't mean once you're in office, you will behave democratically. That is respect the rule of law, respect the result of the next round of elections, respect other institutions, that checks and balances of a democratic system. And so the danger is that these kinds of leaders can be elected and with under the kind of veneer of democracy, can attack democracy. So the challenge for voters citizens and for analysts is to kind of identify a politician who might be a threat to democracy, although using democratic means to come to power. And, you know, one can be accused of simply being a partisan. If you don't like the other side, you just say, oh, they're an authoritarian. And so we have to come up with some sort of objective criteria to evaluate, to be able to distinguish between a politician who you just don't like And a politician who's a genuine threat to democracy. So in our book, we propose what we call a litmus test. We draw on the scholar, great political scientist, Juan Linz, who was a political scientist who grew up and was born in Weimar, Germany, and grew up in Spain during the Spanish Civil War and taught for many years at Yale. And in a book he wrote in the 1970s, he proposed this thing he called a democratic litmus test. And we adapted a little bit, but basically drawing upon that, proposed a set of criteria by which you can recognize if somebody's an authoritarian. It's good for all citizens to have this Have checklist in mind. So you can evaluate a political party or a politician. And so the key elements are fourfold. Number one, does the politician, even before they get into office, question the legitimacy of elections, question the legitimacy of the constitution? They sort of question the democracy. Number two, do they challenge the legitimacy of their rivals? Do they treat their own partisan rivals as traitors or as criminals, do they say, threaten to lock up their rivals? Do they threaten, say that their rivals are traitors and need to be, you know, don't even have a right to compete for office? So they sort of challenge the legitimacy of their rivals. Number three, do they participate in, or do they can even condone violence of their supporters? So if you have if you have a politician who has, you know, a private militia at his disposal, then, and uses that militia to try to gain power or kind of turns a blind eye to his own militia, then this is a bad sign. And then number four, do they challenge the basic civil liberties of their opponents, including do they challenge the, essentially attack the media as a kind of illegitimate institution and the kind of freedom of speech of their opponents? So if a politician engages in any of those kinds of behaviors, even before they get into office, on the campaign trail, then one should be worried that once they get into office, they're going to act undemocratically. And the track record's pretty clear that people often think politicians, you know, talk a lot, and then once in office, do something very different. But politicians who behave in any of those four ways tend to, once they're in office, the record's pretty clear, they tend to attack democracy. And so the good news is that as citizens, we can kind of see this ahead of time, and we shouldn't vote for politicians who engage in any of those kinds of behaviors.
0: So have we ever elected an extremist in United States political history?
2: Well, through most of American history, I mean, there's two points I guess I would say in response to this. One, I mean, clearly Donald Trump, this is a, in some ways the inspiration for our book is that in 2000, we read Juan Linz in our classes, had our students read it to talk about like the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s or Italy in the 1920s. And then what was so shocking in 2015, 2016, suddenly we had a politician running for the highest office in the land who was saying, uh, I may or may not accept the results of elections or, you know, in a debate in 2000 or, you know, cheering on violence against his critics at his own election rally, saying, I'll pay for your legal bills if you go after these people or attacking the media as a kind of lying media and, you know, saying the media is corrupt and criminal and so on. So this was clear violations of this litmus test. It was as if Juan Linz, writing in the 1970s had presaged what Donald Trump's behavior. So he's somebody who clearly violated the litmus test. So that's one point. But, you know, and so there's always this debate about Donald Trump was, did this represent a radical departure from the past or not? And in some sense, he certainly did, because we haven't had leading presidential candidates violate this litmus test in the past. But I would want to add the caveat that, that there's a long strand in American history of politicians and sometimes even leaders of political parties behaving in this way. So one can think of Joe McCarthy in the 1950s, who was accusing all his Democratic rivals of being communists and working for the Soviets. And then one can even go further back to the 1920s and 1930s where you had figures like Huey Long, who was a governor of a Democratic Party and senator from Louisiana who behaved in authoritarian ways. You can think of radio personalities, media figures. There was a radio personality, Father Coughlin, who was a Catholic right-wing radio personality who had millions of listeners, who was anti-Semitic. And then Henry Ford in the 1920s, the founder of Ford Motor Company, who was a famous anti-Semite in addition to finding Ford Motor Company, and had ambitions to run for office. What's different though about from 2016 to 2020 and these earlier episodes is that all of these other figures were pretty marginal. McCarthy was of course pretty significant, Huey Long was significant, but they were kept far from being the nominee of a major political party. This was kind of a deviant strand at the margins of our political system that sometimes made its way close to power. And what was different about 2016 was for the first time in our history, we had a candidate for one of the two leading parties who was breaking the witness test. And that's why it was such a threat.
0: This candidate you mentioned and later elected president, Donald Trump, ran as part of the Republican ticket and established political party in 2016 and 2020. How do you think the Republican Party today is grappling with Trumpism, you know, in the Biden presidency? And what is the future of the Republican Party?
2: Yeah, that's one of the most difficult and important questions we face today, I would say. I don't have a good answer because it's, there's a kind of open question about what the future holds. I mean, I think one thing is clear, though, that one can say is that since 2016, in many ways, the situation's gotten worse because, you know, in 2016, Donald Trump was kind of viewed as having hijacked the Republican Party. Uh, And there was this sense that the Republican establishment, you know, whether one's talking about Mitch McConnell, you know, the head of the Republicans in the Senate or Paul Ryan, who was the Republican Speaker of the House back when Trump became president, that this kind of Republican establishment would stand up against the kind of worst abuses of Trump. And there was this sort of way in which the Republican leadership thought, well, we can ally with this guy and he will help us find a popular voting base. But at the end of the day, we'll be in charge and we will call the shots. But what's become clear is that since 2016, Trumpism has, one interpretation is that it has spread and infected the entire Republican Party. Another view is maybe the Republican Party was always this way, and it's only kind of revealed itself. In any case, what's certainly clear is that the rot runs much deeper today than we thought in 2016. And the Republican leadership is very much really running scared of Trumpism. And one can look today at the Republican caucus that has taken control of the House of Representatives, Kevin McCarthy, who I think is somebody who tried to walk a fine line between the different factions of his party. I think today it's pretty clear as Speaker of the House with this very thin majority that he's going to have, he's going to be running scared of those members of his Republican caucus who are have, you know, proclaimed real fealty to Trump. And so I think Trump, the Republican Party today is not the Republican Party of the 1980s. You know, in the 1980s, you know, this is maybe some of your listeners, you know, don't remember the 1980s, but, you know, some of them maybe do. You look back at pictures of the 1980s and, you know, Ronald Reagan would travel to Europe and he would meet with Helmut Kohl, the head of the Christian Democratic Party in Germany, or Margaret Thatcher, the head of the Conservative Party in Britain, and they would meet. And they were party allies, basically broadly of the same center-right party family. Today, the evidence is pretty clear, and there's some scholars who've really demonstrated this doing analyses of Republican ideology and comparing to other parties' ideology. The Republican Party's ideology is much more similar to the Fidesz party in Hungary, which is an authoritarian party in terms of its orientation towards liberalism and liberal democracy, much more similar to Viktor Erdogan's party in Turkey than these old parties of the center-right. When President Trump was in office, in fact, Trump's ambassador to Germany gotten a lot of hot waters. The American ambassador to Germany gotten a lot of hot water because he spoke up in support of the AFD, which is a radical right party in Germany, which is a really marginal fringe party at election time. First of all, when you're an ambassador, you're not supposed to be making comments on domestic politics. And most shockingly, he was coming out and endorsing almost and sort of lending his support to radical right marginal party that within Germany is regarded by the German political establishment as a marginal anti-immigrant radical right party. And this is now the kind of party family that the American Republican Party is part of. This is obviously a major problem because unlike in Europe, where you have a bunch of center-right parties, center-left parties, and then some radical right parties in the United States, because we have a two-party system, to have a political party, of one of the two parties, Being essentially allied with radical right parties of Western Europe is bad news for our democracy.
0: Andrew Yang formed the Forward Party in October 2021 as sort of a third option for U.S. politics. What do you think would need to happen for a third party like the Forward Party to actually be a viable option?
2: Yeah, I'm pretty skeptical, I have to say, of the forward party. I think the motivations are well-intended, but I'm pretty skeptical about its prospects and about its ability to kind of affect the change that its founders want. And I'm skeptical, not because I'm skeptical that we should have more than two parties. In fact, I think it would be a great benefit to American politics to have more than two parties, as many other democracies do. I'm skeptical because the rules of the game in the United States, we have a particular kind of electoral system, voting rules that differ from West European and many other democracies, and that rather than having a proportional system where you can have multiple candidates being elected from each election district, let's say in Congress, we have a system in which you have one representative of each election district, so single member districts as political scientists call them. And so what this does is this provides incentives for voters to not want to waste their votes on a third party because you kind of feel like you're throwing away your vote because there's only one candidate. If you had a proportional system like you have in Europe and many countries of Europe, Germany, Denmark, Netherlands, and so on, then that makes a lot of sense to vote for a third party. So I think the way forward, and I think actually the forward party is an advocate of this, is changing our voting rules. But in a way, we have to kind of change the rules before we can expect the rise of a third party. So one of the things that's happened And the way we would change our voting rules is not through national legislation, but rather because our elections in the United States are determined at the state level to push for voting rights reform at the state level. One kind of major area that's gotten a lot of movement in this, and I would encourage your listeners to look into, is our proposals of ranked order voting across various states. And so in Maine... A couple of years ago, there was an initiative that passed that allows for ranked order voting. So this is a kind of voting system where instead of just counting up the votes, you know, who gets the most votes in your state, there's a kind of system where you rank the candidates on the, the ballot. Look, effectively looks different in Maine. Alaska is another state that has introduced this. And so I think the more states that introduce this, this would allow for voters to vote for rank their candidates. And in those kinds of states, it makes sense for third parties to begin to run. As those reforms take hold, then I think a third party would have more of a chance. As it currently is to, let's say, run a third party candidate, a progressive third party candidate in a presidential election would simply have the effect of dividing the opposition to Trumpism. And I think that's very dangerous because in an era in which you're facing a political party, as unfortunately in the current moment that has authoritarian tendencies, the most critical thing is to have a unified, broad coalition of people who are committed to democracy despite ideological differences. And my concern, let's say in a presidential election, is that this actually divides the democratic opposition. And when the democratic opposition is divided, I think the historical record, the record from other countries is pretty clear. This allows authoritarians to win.
0: In your book, you write about two concepts, mutual toleration and institutional forbearance. Can you talk about what they are and how we have relied on them?
2: These two concepts are really important because in any democracy, the written law. The law is on the books. The Constitution itself only gets you so far. You know, no Constitution, no written law can kind of prepare for every scenario. You know, there's always ways of circumventing a written rule. I mean, we all know this in every facet of our lives. In our political systems, this is the case as well. And so all— Situations, social situations, your family life, your classroom life, your university life, and in your political system as a whole, you have to rely on unwritten rules, rules of behavior that get enforced essentially by people sort of wagging their finger at you when you break the rule. You're not necessarily breaking a law, but you're breaking an expected way of behavior. So in our political systems, there's two unwritten rules that matter a lot. One is the notion of mutual toleration, which is that you essentially treat your rivals as rivals, no matter how much you disagree with or even dislike your opponents. Your opponents have a right to compete for office and if they beat you to govern. And so, in other words, you don't treat your rivals as enemies. That's an unwritten rule that's absolutely critical for democracy. Second unwritten rule that we emphasize is this maybe a little less obvious what we call institutional forbearance was essentially the idea that you don't use the full power that you have under the law to the max. It's essentially a kind of form of self-restraint if you think of like how much power under the law or under the constitution the president has in the United States, you know, until 1951, there was no term limits, for example, nothing written into the constitution. Presidents could have been presidents for life, but presidents only ran for two terms. And this was only due to the fact that George Washington very famously only ran for two terms. And this established a norm that no matter how ambitious you are, no matter how popular you are, after two terms, you resign from politics. You don't campaign for a third term. This norm was broken under Roosevelt, and so then a law had to be changed. But it was an unwritten rule that governed politicians' behaviors for all this year. There's lots of other ways that presidents have incredible power still today. You know, they can rule by executive order if their bills get stuck in Congress. Presidents can expand the size of the Supreme Court. There's nothing in the Constitution written down saying what the size of the court should be. Congress has incredible powers It can shut down government, and we'll actually maybe see something like this coming up very shortly with the debt ceiling. Congress can refuse to pass budgets if it doesn't like what the president's doing. If you use the rules to the max, if you act without forbearance, this is what we call constitutional hardball, this is what can kill a democracy because this can lead to incredible gridlock. Essentially, what are normally sort of watchdogs in a democracy have essentially become either lapdogs for a president or somebody in power, or they become attack dogs that just bring government to a standstill. So in order for democracy to work, politicians have to act with this unwritten rule of forbearance. And so acting with forbearance, acting with mutual toleration allows democracies to work. We call these the soft guardrails of our democracy, and they prevent healthy competition from spiraling into gridlock and political death.
0: You also write that the norms sustaining our political system rested to a considerable degree on racial exclusion in the past. When we look at today, how do we bolster these democratic norms in a society where people are still politically and socially and culturally excluded and where people of different identities who maybe would have been excluded before are now running for political office?
2: Yeah, this is a really good point that you bring up because- You know, through most of American history, we weren't a democracy, really not until the 1960s. And so these norms that I just described of mutual toleration and forbearance were operating in a context in which the people running the political system were basically all white men. In some ways, it was much easier for all of these white men, despite some of their ideological differences, to act with mutual toleration towards each other, to act with self-restraint towards each other if they were not so dissimilar and they weren't frightened of each other. As our political system and our democracy has thankfully become more diverse with women gaining the right to vote, with non-whites and African-Americans in particular in the U.S. South gaining the right to vote in the 1960s, our democracies has become much more diverse. People who previously dominated the political system regard those groups that were designated as outsiders gaining power as frightening. And so some people feel like the country that they grew up in is being taken away from them in some way And so they regard the opposition party increasingly as dangerous, as threatening. And so it's much harder to act with mutual toleration when you fear the other side. Because if you think the other side is going to change your way of life and attack your basic interests, then you'll go use any means necessary to stop that other side. So you will no longer act with forbearance. And so I think what's really happened in the U.S. in some ways since the 1990s is in reaction to the increasingly democratic nature of our political system. Those who previously dominated the political system or felt that they, you know, were at the top of kind of social hierarchy have acted have have had declining mutual toleration to the other side, have acted with decreasing forbearance, and so through the 1990s you got the first partisan impeachment in, in over 130 years of a sitting president. You had the first modern government shutdown, and you know this kind of stuff where the Congress sort of essentially brings the government to a grinding halt. During the 2000s, 2010s, when Barack Obama became president. There were an increasing number of Americans and particular Republicans who thought that President Obama actually wasn't born in the United States challenging his basic legitimacy to govern. There was this incredible quote from one congressman, Mike Kaufman, who at one point said, you know, I don't know if Barack Obama was born in the United States, but I do know in his heart he's not really an American. You know, so this kind of language, you know, escalated our politics. And then once this kind of begins, there's this risk of a kind of spiral. I'm just diagnosing the problem. You asked the most difficult question, which is, well, how do we sustain these norms in a multi-ethnic democracy? And I think this is the challenge of our era and it's absolutely essential. I mean, I think you can't have a democracy without mutual toleration. But on the other hand, you can't have a democracy if you exclude people from having the right to vote. And in the past, in American history, we made the tragic decision after the end of the Reconstruction era in the 19th century to kind of restore mutual toleration after the Civil War by allowing Jim Crow South to take root and essentially excluding people from having the right to vote. And so there's some who say well, we need to depolarize by sort of not talking about race so much. In effect, what this is asking us to do is to kind of overlook racial inequities for the purposes of getting along. And I think that's a trade-off that's not really worth making. And so the challenge is how to accept those who don't look like us, who don't, you know, maybe believe in different religions and who believe differently than we do, who lead different ways of life than the other side. Recognizing these people have, a, everybody has a right, if you're a citizen of this country, to compete for office, to vote on equal playing terms. And that's the sort of essence of the democratic challenge of our era.
0: In the midterm elections, several election deniers were defeated at the ballot box. Do you think this suggests that something has changed about the state of democracy in the U.S.?
2: Yeah, it's good news. I think we really dodged a bullet because had we had secretaries of state in particular at the level of U.S. states who are the ones who oversee elections, who hadn't accepted the 2020 election in positions of power, where they're the ones validating and overseeing elections for the 2024 presidential election, we would have really been in a dire situation. So thankfully we dodged that bullet. But one of the things that we have to remember though, is that we, I don't think we should rest too easy because a lot of these candidates almost got 50% of the vote. So somebody like Kerry Lake in Arizona you know, got 49.5 or 0.7% of the vote, and she was somebody who wouldn't accept the election. I don't think she's actually admitted her own defeat yet. So, you know, there's large segments of the electorate still believing that the 2020 election was stolen, despite all evidence to the contrary. Structurally, in a lot of ways, I think our democracy remains incredibly vulnerable. And the challenge for us is to think about why are we in this situation where each national election feels like a national emergency? And we need to think of ways of reforming our democracy and doubling down on our democracy to make it so that elections can be kind of low-stakes affairs. Because in order for democracy to be stable, and that is in order for democracy to address the real challenges that we face, climate change, inequality, racial injustice— We need to have a functioning democracy. In order to have a functioning democracy, we can't every two years think that our democracy is about to die. So I think we continue to face a lot of these challenges, you know, and I do hope that we increasingly have politicians who accept election results, and this will encourage kind of a stabilization of our democracy.
0: In your view, has Citizens United made it more difficult for people with different views or different identities to form alliances and sort of oppose this, you know, anti-democratic trend?
2: This Supreme Court decision that you're referring to is was a real strike against American democracy for a couple of reasons. Number one, it allowed for free flow of money into campaigns, giving those with money more voice than those without money. And you know, democracy is premised on the notion of political equality. Every person has the same political weight in a decision in an election. Since money matters a lot, this undermines that basic principle of political equality. So just out of kind of basic political principles, this is a threat to democracy. I think number two, what it does, though, is it gives voice to forces that don't represent majorities. And so you know, if you wonder why is it that a Supreme Court can make these decisions, let's say, in its overturning of Roe versus Wade or in other areas that depart more and more from what majorities value, I think part of the reason we have to think about this is that our Supreme Court is nominated by presidents, confirmed by senators, and if our elections allow for political minorities with lots of money, when I say political minorities, I mean, you know, those on the losing side of elections, nonetheless to have outsized influence, then our Supreme Court's gonna deviate further and further from where the majority is. And as that happens, we're going to get policies that majorities of people don't like. And there seems to be nothing we can do about it because if the Supreme Court says it's legal, this is legal. So in these two ways, I think, money has kind of perverted our democracy and our politics.
0: You mentioned that in 1972, there's a shift in how U.S. political parties defend our democracy. So what role did these political parties have in protecting our democracy in the past? And how has that changed since 1972?
2: Yeah, so there's this really kind of invisible part of our democracy that a lot of people don't pay attention to, which is how the candidates get selected. When you've just voted in your in the midterm elections, you get your ballot and there's a bunch of names on the ballot for Democratic Party, Republican Party. And we kind of forget that there's this pre-selection process. And, you know, we know about it now in the selection of the presidential candidates. You know, you think back to the 2020 election, all of the candidates standing on stage and the voters get to decide who is the nominee. So, some you know, we had these primary state by state. This is a relatively new system, though. Before 1972 in the United States, there were some primaries, but they weren't binding. So the results of those primaries in the states didn't determine who the candidates were or for the presidency, for each party. Instead, before 1972 in the United States, a lot of the decisions were made by party leaders and often kind of what people would describe as smoke-filled back rooms at conventions. Political leaders, governors, mayors, leading political figures would get together often in the hotel rooms sort of right by the convention center, get together and say, who should be the nominee? And they would look at the primary results and take that into consideration and they would kind of settle on somebody who they thought, who they knew, could deal with adversity well, could deal with stress well, who they thought would be a popular candidate. Now, this isn't a particularly democratic system, this pre-1972 smoke-filled rooms system. But the upside of that system, and it's you know, it's not really popular to praise it these days, and there's not a lot to not like about it, but the one upside to it was that these guys knew the candidates pretty well, and they generally picked candidates who were not demagogues. They picked pretty mainstream candidates who were not threats to democracy. What happened after 1972 is the system was democratized. The smoke-filled rooms were opened up and a series of reforms introduced by the parties themselves, both the Democrats and the Republican parties, allowed for these binding primaries, state by state, to choose the candidates. And so that's the system we have today. And at the time that that reform was introduced, there were some political scientists who worried That this opens the door potentially to demagogues. But the party said, well, that's not going to really happen. And so for the most of our history, that's been okay. But what happened in 2015, 2016 is that early warning of political scientists back in 1972 came true. You had somebody coming along in the form of Donald Trump who had never run for political office before, had previously been a Democrat, who the party establishment really would have never let through the smoke-filled rooms back before 1972, who made their way through the primary system and beat out all the rivals. And so, you know, this is a double-edged sword, whereas this system is is more democratic. It allows outsiders in. I think without the primary system, Barack Obama would have never won the Democratic nomination for president in 2008. The insider, Hillary Clinton, would have won. But it's a double-edged sword because sometimes then demagogues get in. What's just interesting to think about is that not all democracies have our system. A lot of European democracies, you have to be a party member to vote on who the party leader is. We don't really have a kind of similar system of party membership where you're kind of dues-paying member of the Democratic or Republican Party, and that system has its virtues because what you end up having are, are candidates who have lots of experience. There's a kind of, of election among the party membership of who the nominee for the parties should be, and so I don't think we should go back to the smoke-filled rooms, but this is an area that should be of attention for all of us to think about how do we kind of perfect the system in which you know we get more voice from normal citizens, but on the other hand, We are not vulnerable to these kind of demagogues. And, you know, there's different ideas on the table. Some people say we should have like a two-round presidential system like France has. Other people say we should change the sequence of states. And it's a little idiosyncratic. But in any case, I think our primary system is not the best system in the world. I don't say we should go back to the old system, but this is something that people should be paying attention to because it's basically a kind of invisible part of our political process.
0: Thank you so much, Professor Ziblatt. That was incredible. Yeah,
2: thank you.
1: So, Jess, I'm curious, what do you want listeners to take away from this conversation?
0: I hope listeners understand that as the United States becomes a society where more people can participate politically than ever before, we are now experiencing a real reckoning with inequality, racial injustice, and money and elitism in politics. Some debates being had today did not happen with the same intensity or at the same scale in the past, because democracy was only available to a small minority of Americans for most of our history. So if we want democracy to survive, we need to think deeply about these issues and address them. We need to have rigorous discussion that isn't suppressed, banned, or censored, and we need to hear from those that are most impacted. If we don't, demagogues will take advantage of our inaction and our democracy will die.
1: Thanks so much for sharing, Jess. Follow Untextbooked on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen so you never miss an episode.
0: If you are interested in student-led storytelling about historical topics, I encourage you to apply to join the Untextbook team. I deeply enjoyed my time as an Untextbook producer and exploring the challenging issues of our past
1: and present. Learn more at untextbook.com. Sign up for emails and become a member for added perks. Plus, every week we share a glossary of terms and other learning resources designed for teachers and students. Follow us on Instagram at Untextbook. I'm Gabe Hostin. Thanks to the History Collab, Fernanda Rain and C.C. Payne. Untextbook is produced by Pod People, Rachel King, Amy Machado, Danielle Roth, Hannah Pedersen, and Michael Aquino.